It's another episode of Where You Are, Season 3. Thank you so much for listening to what is actually the 35th episode of my podcast. I'm so excited about that. This episode, I will be sharing with you my interview with Elena Browning, who is this fantastic woman that I work with. She's a librarian. She's one of those people that makes work better. I have quite a few people that I work with who are just these rays of sunshine. I'm always happy to see them. The women in my office suite. Carrie and Lindsay and Zanja and the and and people who aren't in the office suite like Janina who's been on the podcast and and um, uh, Natalia and Donna. There's just so many wonderful people I work with, and Elena is one of them. And I really enjoy talking to her about libraries and literacy and information literacy about her experiences growing up about her experiences as a mother, and she's also in the process, she and her husband, of adopting another child. So it's just a wonderful conversation that we had one day after work, and we recorded it, and I just really think you'll enjoy it. I'm sitting here watching Adele one night only and just loving it. It's so nice to see someone just shining. You know, she's doing this concert at this observatory, in LA, I can't remember what it's called. It's so beautiful. It's outside on this tall mountain and the sun's going down and she's singing and she's just so beautiful. And her voice is so beautiful. And, and, and the stories that she's telling after her divorce are so honest and touching. I'm just really enjoying it. But anyway, enough about that. That's a little bit about what I'm doing. I'm also getting ready for my move, which is coming up in a few weeks. But I hope that you all enjoy this episode, and that is all I have to say because Adele's coming back on. All right, Elena, I'm recording. I'm here with Elena Browning, who I want to tell you this for real. Yeah. When you came along on the scene, so we work together, there is not very often that someone comes into my life where I'm like, I think this is one of the coolest people I've ever oh. met. Like you are one of the most original, interesting. Oh, thank you. People, smart, funny, but they're, you're you're just really cool. You're like no, a cool no. person. <laughs> so Elena. This is the first time in my 30 years I've been called cool, let me tell you. You are cool. And and what I love is that you get things done. Like you do things. You're very interesting. You're smart. So you're a librarian here at the college where we mm -hmm. work. And one of the things I want to talk to you about is libraries and the current state of libraries and where you think libraries are headed. And I also want to talk about how you got into it, what mm -hmm. your childhood was like and 
things like that. So let's just start off by saying, how would you, you know, the different kinds of librarians I've noticed. Yes. Yeah. How would you describe yourself as a librarian? So, um, it's, it's hard to, uh, pin it down because I spent, a, well, I guess I should back up. Um, in libraries, a lot of people don't realize you have a um, library degree, an MLIS, Master's in Library and Information Sciences, that is equal parts social work, uh, copyright, some social justice things as they pertain to libraries, and uh, a little bit of books and customer service thrown in. So I got that degree from Alabama, um, but I actually couldn't have gotten the master's degree without starting at Bevel. I keep maintaining that. I spent most of my time in public libraries. That was um, where I just kind of felt more at home. So when I took this job, this was actually a library assistant position that doesn't require the degree because I felt like it'd be a bit easier to gain my footing if I started off in a new sort of field within libraries. So with academic libraries, you tend to have more of the research oriented. You're obviously helping college students and professors find their information. With public, it's more helping people um, apply for jobs, gain access to uh, benefits, services that they're seeking to make their life better. Um, sometimes it involved when I was a children's librarian, of course, story times and things, but helping moms that were homeless find shelters and things like that. So it really runs the gamut. Um, but with this position, um, being at a community college, I really like that it's like a hybrid, like I mean, there are the days that we have research questions and we have students working on resumes and professors that ask us to fact check something before it comes up in a lecture um, because the facts may have changed and y'all stay so busy. Um, but then we also have students who come in that are prospective students that are just trying to make their lives better and get in the workforce, especially in the trades that we do. So I really find that there's a lot from both aspects. I, like. I feel like I just cherry pick the best of what I enjoy about the field and it's all here. I get to do a little bit of programming too. That's what we call like the not so much the story times, although I got to do one virtually for the public library through this position. Oh, cool. um, but things like the writing group that we do, you know, the the programming is, is sort of the fun part. Um, yeah, I love the writing group. I want to talk a little bit about that. So you have a lot of experience. We started a writing group here mm -hmm. at at Bevel in, in the library and you run it. You're the, the person who mm -hmm. runs it, but you have a lot of experience doing that from the public libraries. I'm yes. assuming. So what is, what was that experience like and how does it inform what you're doing here? Well, um, when I started the writing group that I actually started in my junior year of high school and it just ran throughout college too, I sort of didn't feel like I had any right to be teaching creative writing. So I would, um, tell everyone whenever we talked about anything, this is what I've read, or this is what comes from Stephen King or um, Anne Lamott or, you know, Julia Cameron, whoever I was referencing. And it, we sort of treated it like a, I guess, peer study group sort of. And I still keep that format today. I, I try to say like, you know, I have read that this, or this is my experience or, but um, even with eight years under my belt as, um, as leading one, I went from the all ages writing group that I did back then because there were just so it was so hard to get people that we thought I'm not going to restrict it by age, grade, anything like that experience level. 
when I was in Tuscaloosa at another library position, I did one for teens and tweens. And that was so much fun because you've got these young, enthusiastic writers that are um, just discovering what they enjoy writing and trying out new things. Um, and in Anniston, when I moved there for a library position, I tried doing one for teens and tweens that we never really could get the footing for. Then I tried one for adults, and both times um, we were lacking for attendance. We just couldn't get more than a few people. So that was the only time that I really couldn't kind of. But if your community doesn't need it, then, you know. Right. I mean, that's the the main thing with um, library programming that I should have known is even though a few people had asked for it, it doesn't mean that they'll attend it and doesn't mean that it's what your community needs. And um, the community in Tuscaloosa and the community in Jasper did and the community here seems to, but Aniston, it just never took off. So, Well, you have talked to me before about how you write every morning or mm -hmm. most mornings. Mm -hmm. You have a very diligent writing <laughs> practice. Why don't you describe that for people? Because I think I have people listening who like oh, to sure. write. So, well, you have to understand I'm a morning person and that's obnoxious, but um, that's also my quiet time. I have a four-year-old and it's just a house full of animals, it feels like. Um, and so, Wait, wait. So you have a dog? Three cats. Three cats. Okay. Mm -hmm. and, and a child who's four. Four. And, uh, and your husband. Yes. And Dalton. And uh, living out in the country is loud. And I never realized that before. But long before any of that stuff, I was still getting up early and writing because it was the only time I could find before school and before work. And uh, I think it started maybe in high school, I would get up at like 5.30. And then I was like, oh, this isn't enough time to write. So I'd get up at five. And then it still wasn't enough time. And so I'd get up at 4.34. And at one point, it was 3.30. Not manageable anymore. <laughs> but um, it sort of starts my day off doing something I enjoy and lets me almost get, get up on the right foot. Um, even if the writing's not great that morning, it still feels like it's something that charges my morning. I tell, I probably preach on it too much, but I tell y'all in writing group too, um, the daily writing is really the only way to kind of gain that momentum and get longer works going, which I prefer writing. I really struggle with short stories. It's the hardest thing for me to write a short story. So writing in a longer format with novel length works, it helps me kind of keep going in that quiet Didn't hour. Did you recently finish something that you're having people look at? I did. I've got a few people that are um, a handful of people reading it to see um, what plot holes that I may have, what kind of um, cliches I may not be aware of and things. Um, but it is novel length. When I worked it out um, with one of those calculators online, it was uh, 130,000 words, um, which translates to if it were a printed novel about 40, I think it was 440 pages. Wow. Um, yeah, it, it's fantasy genre and they run a bit longer, but I kind of freaked myself out when I did that because you're really not supposed to think about the end product. Um, and I usually don't, but I'm waiting until I get enough responses back from that, that I feel okay going to a literary agent and starting that process of, you know, they find that basically they pair you with a publisher they think would be your best bet. And then they take 15% of whatever sales are. So that's traditional publishing. Um, I don't feel super confident with uh, self-publishing. A lot of people love it. It's just not kind of my thing. So that's just sort of a personal preference or you don't have like a specific 
piece of advice against no, doing no, self-publishing? Yeah. I think self-publishing is fine. Traditional is fine. Um, I just personally feel like I'd rather rely on someone's expertise of the marketing side of things um, because I'd always have my insecurities cropping up of what if it's only because I paid them that they publish this? What if this? And it's just playing whack-a-mole with insecurities. You just. <laughs> so what do you do in the meantime? So you are waiting for people to get back to you. What are you doing in the meantime? Well, are you I'm, something else. Or I am. Still I, it's part of a series. So I have three parts in it that I can just jump around in. And um, while I'm waiting to hear about the first one, I finished the second one about the time that I was polishing that. And now I'm on the third one and there's only three. So I can, I, I feel like I always have to have something going. I have to have a project. Where do the characters and the plots and the and the worlds come from? Are you? It's hard to say. Like the characters, um, I don't use real people. The only time I tried to use like a real living person, they the character was so flat, and everybody was like, "What's up with this person?" The uh, characters are largely, unless someone has you know passed away or something largely fictional. Um, and then when people pass away, they kind of stay static. So I feel like that isn't going to um, kind of have that flat aspect, but the plot, I sort of, I sort of always fall back to this Emily Dickinson quote of dwell in possibility. And I feel like that's sort of where a lot of it comes from is just what if this happened and what if this happened after that and sort of chaining events together, I sort of hear character voices most clearly because dialogue tends to be something that comes easily to me at least. So I, if I hear characters kind of speaking and what their tones are, I'm thinking, okay, this could work. I could listen to them and sort of from what their behavior is informs that plot. So I just follow them and see where they go. So are you always curious about this? When I talk to people who write, are you constantly aware how people are talking, what they're doing? Are you mm -hmm. noticing things about? Yeah. I, I had a professor in college who wanted me to go into linguistics and I didn't realize I had an ear for that um, until she pointed it out. But um, I, I do tend to focus on that and how people speak and what they're talking around a lot of the times. And uh, I think it's why even movies, I get drawn to movies that are dialogue heavy, like, um, like Kevin Smith movies and things you wouldn't think twice about that are sort of, central to that dialogue. I mean, central to that plot is that dialogue. Um, plays are, I love Broadway. I love musicals and I, I could listen to plays all day. I could read plays all day because it's showing that action and that plot through that. Well, I know we were considering having you write a play version <laughs> of Fry Green Tomatoes. What happened? I feel, uh, tell us what happened. I know. Miss Flagg's lawyer said you can't do that. Mm -hmm. And um, that they were not relinquishing any kind of rights, which it technically would fall under adaptation, but I'm not going to pretend to know more than a lawyer. Um, and plus when I started, when I sat down to write it, I realized it was more, she does such a good job with that book. It's more transcript than actually writing something new. I think honestly, I would have gotten halfway through and been pulling my hair out because it would have felt too derivative or something. Yeah. Um, it was a good thing in the end, but I was miffed that we couldn't bring that, I know, that to the stage. Been fun. I yeah. went to the Irondale Cafe, which is the Whistle Stop Cafe. Mm -hmm, I saw that. A couple of weeks ago, and I saw Fanny's picture up there. 
So what kinds of things do you read? What you probably read a lot of different genres. But I are do. Are some favorite authors, books, genres that um, you have? My, um, my comfort food of reading is Stephen King. And when I don't know what else to read, I read Stephen King. Um, just because he tends to write so much more than horror that um, can circle back to those horrifying themes. But he also was a literature professor, was a janitor, I think, a librarian or, you know, library assistant at one point. And he tends to have very fleshed out and researched characters. So every time I read it, if it's a main character that's a police officer, I'm thinking, oh, I didn't know that aspect worked that way, like in a crime novel he wrote. Or if it's a main character that is a teacher, I'm thinking, oh, I didn't know that that was actually an aspect of teaching. That So I get as sucked into that as I do the horror aspects. The horror's fun, but I always find that even if it's a standalone, I can kind of fall into that world so so you think you read as a writer mm -hmm. a lot of times i think i think i couldn't stop now if i tried like any more than i can read a children's book without hearing it in my story time voice does it in any way dampen your experience or does it heighten it in some way sometimes it makes it tough like i um there's times i'll i'll get a book i love audiobooks and i think you hear it more critically especially when you're um like driving and you're listening with one ear so i'll hear it and i'll think oh they're gonna do that thing where you know the character sees herself in a mirror and here's what she looks like or oh good he's a bad guy turned good and you know i'm thinking i can't sit through this i um i'm listening to one right now that i want to like so badly and it's it's why, and which I also like writing. So I was like, okay, but it's um, the main character is Daphne from mythology. And I think they're making Apollo a love interest, which is not how that story goes down. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't listen to It's painful, <laughs> but I also can't stop it. Like I, if I ever write anything and want you to read it, I'm, I'm going to be terrified, but I would definitely be. want you to read it because of your experience. I can never find like, I can't find myself being, too critical of like people's if I know them like they're writing um I mean critical in a constructive sense but not how dare they um or how could they I well the exception being when I was a public librarian um you get a lot of self-published novels that are very interesting like they're basically manifestos published and there were times that I was like oh this was a doozy this one's <laughs> I'll give you Can feedback. Can you remember like a summary of one of the dooziest distances? Oh, Lord. There was one. I just made that word up. Yeah, I get you. There was one that um, I don't feel like he listens to podcasts. Um, you don't have to give names. Well, well you might know. I started to say, I, don't, I only know his pen name, which was Solomon Backwards. So it's like Nomulus. And it had a lot of, it was called A Political Prophecy, but I can't remember the title. And it was very like critical of president obama but in the wildest ways like it blamed him for um climate change oh, which was different it um went over about 30 pages about angels and also like mixed race relationships somehow Interesting. And it was so hard to follow and i showed my assistant i was like what is this and she she said you know the patron left it for you and said you'd understand and you clearly don't i was like i don't <laughs> But at least, you know, at least the guy's riding and he's sure, yeah. chasing that dream. And I was just very confused reading it. Like, I think he thought it was very, um, like, some of these expose kind of books. It yeah. just 
It was a lot. Do you miss working in the public libraries? Sometimes I do. Um, sometimes I miss it, especially because you get such a wide array of patrons and you really have to fight that elitism that comes through. But there's other challenges too. Like when I worked in public libraries, there was more, more issues with like censorship with books and things like that. And uh, there were censorship from like the, from other librarians. librarians. Like um, we had a book, it was a Marlon Bundo and it was, I want to say it was bad. It wasn't, Steve Colbert, maybe it was Oliver, but anyway, um, I'll look it up and include yeah, it. Yeah, please include it. Cause I'm, I hate to miscite it, but anyway, it, we referred to it as the gay bunny book because <laughs> they took Mike Pence's bunny, who is a character, like a real life pet and had him find the bunny love of his life, also male. And then they fought for equal rights. And then there was an evil stink bug that looked a lot like Mike Pence. I didn't know this when I ordered it. I thought it was just a cute bunny book. And then when I got it, I was like, Oh, it's, a tad bit political, but it still encompassed good themes. And it talked about why you should vote and change things. And oh boy, did I catch flag for that. Uh, uh, it's probably still not on the shelf in Aniston, but uh, the director did not feel as if children, well, she didn't think there were families that represented in Aniston for one thing, but then uh, she didn't allow me to, uh, she let me put that book in circulation, but they had to be in a bin on the shelf or on the desk they couldn't be on the shelf. And about that so, time, I started looking for other places. <laughs> so they, librarians do get to choose sort of what is in circulation. Yes. Yeah. Or they can pull something they think it might be offensive to a yes, population yeah. or whatever. It's usually um, the directors that will do that. Usually uh, the librarians have a pretty good sense of who comes in, who checks out what, that kind of thing. And uh, directors have to worry more with the donations and the, you know, support aspects. And so... But I will say in her defense, she let me MC Rocky Horror uh, for the mm -hmm. adults. So it wasn't like she just came through. Right. I'm not trying to villainize her or anything. No, I just no. am fascinated by the what how that works behind the scenes. And, and the same thing happened in um, Tuscaloosa at Tuscaloosa's public library with um, Tango Makes Three. A librarian friend of mine, um, you know, caught some flack from a parent because she suggested that book or read that book. I'm not really quite sure. And uh, I know our, our manager of the youth services department came down on her pretty hard back then, but um, that would have been 2013, 14. So yeah. it's unfortunately a recurring theme. There's a wonderful professor in the library school that talks about subversive story times and how you can get around that and by reading books that show um, quote unquote, best friends or animals that can't be gendered or, Things like Red, a crayon story, which has to do with a blue crayon in a red crayon wrapper. So everybody keeps telling him he's red. He's actually blue. And that's why he can't do red shapes. I mean, red um, drawings and things like strawberries. So it's a little bit of a, a play on um, the idea of trans identity and things like that and uh, transgender issues. And a kid who is sitting in that audience of story time who feels that way will read into that. Whereas the parent who disapproves of it will never see it. They, they might, if they're so inclined, but you can always say that's a book about crayons. That's, right. you know, what are you talking about? Well, you know, with all of the conversation and furor that's going on mm -hmm. around critical race theory right, right now, I think this is a very relevant 
topic it's, because there are people who are concerned about what books their children are reading, what books are being taught. and Yeah. And it's wild to me that that's even a conversation because um, I mean, I get that there are aspects of people's histories they would rather not disclose. And that's why they're making such a move to stifle it. But CRT isn't even taught below college level in my yeah. experience. I mean, you taught high school, right? No, I haven't taught high school. I've taught, taught dual enrollment. Dual enrollment. Okay. So but um, let me tell you, kindergarten, first grade, second there's grade. There's no K-3 way. Six, they're not understanding critical race theory. Not at all. And that, I know this is being talked about a lot, but go ahead. Right. I'm sorry. I started saying they're not um, coming home saying I'm ashamed I'm white because they are talking about the actual way Thanksgiving played out as opposed to the pilgrims and the natives being best of buds and yeah. um, the narrative we were told. So it's really, it's really funny to me because it just, um, well, the slightly positive side is that now people are discovering what CRT is. And there are teachers that I don't think would have um, blinked twice that now say, Oh, we should be teaching this. Um, a friend of mine teaches middle school and she was like, well, now I have to discuss this because kids keep asking me That's what right. it is. Now they brought it up. Yeah. Right? The kids in the well, hospital. I'll be very honest. I'm, unwittingly have been teaching aspects of critical race theory through well, my freshman college, college to, yeah. yeah yeah for for years because i'll have students read something James baldwin and yeah and and uh ton of high c codes ton of codes sorry um, i'm so glad you pronounced that i didn't know how to but you know they're they're and i have them write about it now i don't push any particular perspective on them but i have them think critically about race well it's what we've it's what we've always read um as far as like even things like maya angelou and langston hughes and i mean those aren't the the ones that always come to mind but it tends to be you can't take it out of a curriculum unless you take out all authors and poets of color and i'm sure there's no problem with that and and one of the ones i heard recently that they want to somewhere they wanted to take out Tony Morrison from the curriculum. Yeah. Tony Morrison. Like, Beloved. Yeah. Really? <laughs> I know it's a, it's just the newest iteration of censorship. And uh, like I said, the nice thing about censorship um, it's why librarians celebrate banned book week is because it brings more attention to the thing you're censoring than if you just shut up about it. So um, we uh, will see more CRT emerging. We'll see more studies it always comes back a lot stronger. So it's almost like the cynical thing that people say all publicity is good publicity. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there absolutely. I I don't feel like there's any I mean, there's books out there that I may not love, but I don't feel like any book is a bad book necessarily. So more power to people finding what they want to read. It yeah. just what do you think is the state of libraries? Are libraries in a state of emergency in our country, do you think? I don't, it feels that way to me sometimes, but I could just be. It does. Um, maybe because I worked under the Trump administration in libraries where we were always getting the emails about funding is on the chopping block. And I feel like libraries often get that rap of, you know, ebooks are coming to take away. Librarians do ebooks now. Librarians do audiobooks. The job is more about people and information and especially misinformation. And I don't feel like that's ever going away, unfortunately. Go more into that. So what would you say <laughs> is the, I love librarians and mm-hmm. I'm, I have a really close friend. That's good to know. <laughs> yeah. My friend Kelly, who listens to my podcast. I love her. She's a librarian at another college and I love her. I, mm-hmm. every, I just love librarians. What do you think the role of the librarian is in society? So we basically just put resources into hands, whether that is, 
a grant and writing up a grant to fund something or showing people that a grant exists, whether it is helping someone get their um, SNAP or WIC or whatever benefits they need put through um, and how to approach it at the office when they go in. If it's a book or if it's, you know, a movie or if it's, you know, this book they haven't read since they were a kid, but it really endeared them to reading, you know, we'll, we'll spend all day searching for that. We, we also typically try to remind people when a source is bad, that that is a bad source, that the topic they're looking for doesn't exist. When I was a children's librarian, for example, I had the occasional parent that wanted books on um, the link between autism and vaccines. It was before COVID, all that. And uh, in Anniston, um, where the Monsanto things happened, you had a lot of distrust of chemicals. And, you know, they're picturing GMOs as like a syringe stuck in an ear of corn. Like it's very scary imagery. So you had a lot of that anti-vax sentiment even back then. And uh, they wanted sources on that. And when I had to say a source doesn't exist on that, just a fictionalized study that a, a guy made up to further his resource that, uh, research that was later debunked. It became sort of, um, well, you're just not giving me that. You're just withholding the information. And librarians mm -hmm. don't withhold information. If we have it, we'll give it to you, and we won't tell anybody else you ask for it. So if you ask for a book on um, vaccines, pro and con, or a book on witchcraft, or a book on cars, we're going to treat it the same and treat it privately because privacy is a big librarianship concern, too. Yeah, so. yeah. Have you all, when you were a child, do you think there was something in you? Because I've heard a little bit about your story. It seems like you've always been interested in being a librarian. Is that <laughs> I, true? Um, I, it was about in high school, I discovered I wanted to be a librarian. Um, even in middle school, I wanted to work in the middle school library at Maddox, but um, it was really just like the teacher's pets that would do that. Right. So I didn't, I wasn't noticeable enough to be in that crowd. And when I was in high school, I was a teacher's or a library aide um, in driver's ed. You'd either be a teacher's aide or a library aide if you weren't driving. And I thought, well, when this is a job, I probably won't love it as much. So then the summer after high school, um, Sandra Underwood, who is the best librarian I've ever met at the Jasper Public Library, she uh, gave me my first job just summer reading hire. And I thought, well, it's a part time summer job. I probably won't love it so much when it's full time. And when I got on full time in the Tuscaloosa Public Library, after being a work study under Miss Witten and at Bevel and all this, I thought, well, it's full time, but I probably won't love it as much when I'm a department head. Department head in Aniston still love it. So I always have those fears. I said the same thing when I came to academia. I was like, when I'm an academic librarian, I won't love it. And it's just never happened. I've always loved it. And I love working with people and finding their their perfect resource or the book that they love. And I feel like I'm recharged by those interactions with people instead of being drained. So that's really good. What was your training like in graduate school? Um, it was, it was different every day. Like it might be a um, professor telling us how to handle if people, you know, yell at you or threaten you. It might be um, like a 20 page paper on, the misinformation, but what what did we call it then? Misinformation and disinformation, maybe? Oh, yes. And the principle of least effort. We trained on that about how people will not go to the second page of Google. Yeah. Ever. Oh, is that the principle, principle of least, of least effort? Principle of least effort. Yeah. 
Um, I'm always begging my students, go past the first page. Yeah, um, they very rarely go past it. And Google does try to put the best sources first, but it wasn't always that way. So we would study on sort of technological phenomena and then also on just the human elements. Like we were showed a clip from, uh, I want to say it's Sophie's Choice, where she's in the library and she's intimidated. And we took whole courses on library intimidation and because people are intimidated mm -hmm. by libraries. So especially the really big ones. Yeah. And it I can get be, intimidated in a library. Well, I do too. When I'm in someone else's terrain and I feel like I'm going to do something wrong or um, my husband is still, I think, terrified of librarians, which is real fun. <laughs> but um, he comes in here and he just, he's just closed down. My daughter walks in like she owns it. I used to have to stop her from shelving books when she was <laughs> in my story time and he'd bring her. <laughs> what advice would you have for people just regular people like me and, you know, in terms of how can we do better research in our lives when we're trying to come to a political, you know, conclusion mm -hmm. or anything like where to buy something or what's good or what's quality. I would say, first of all, be a skeptic. Um, if the little voice of intuition says that doesn't sound quite right. I think we sort of have this, this dichotomy of, I don't quite believe that. And, well, you know all about it. You devoted your life to it. I would say take advantage of your librarians for sure and ask them. But don't, there are librarians who promote misinformation just like there are um, doctors or politicians or whoever you want to pick that sometimes have their facts wrong. The vast majority of doctors, of scientists, they know their research. They know what they're doing. You'll always have that one in a billion. So I'd say be a skeptic and... Uh, None of this do your own research. Ask someone who knows how to research to show you how to research. So, yeah, I think you can get on a really bad habit. You can. You're doing your own research. I, I grew up with a dad who was a conspiracy theorist. And while it was fun, like, because you can't hear about Roswell and all that stuff, like, without being like, oh, that's really neat. And yeah. Fake the lunar landing and all these silly things. At least it taught me to be skeptical about. Um, what I'm, what I'm taking in and, you know, I'm still well, fooled sometimes, but I've been listening do. to that podcast. I told you about it called maintenance phase. Yes. It is so good. And a lot of what they do, the, the guy who is on there, I can't remember his name, had another podcast called you're wrong about that. Yeah. But he does, they do the same thing on uh, maintenance phase. They sort of debunk mm -hmm. bad studies, really interesting stuff. And this is all about weight and nutrition oh, and that cool. whole industry and, yeah. And the nutrition stuff like can go so sideways if you don't like, I don't know the first thing with nutritional information. And I remember repeating something I'd heard. I was in this phase when I think I was nursing my daughter and back at work and I was so paranoid about what I ate because it was what the baby ate. And I told my assistant Kayla, who was just wonderful. I said something about soybeans. She was like, I feel like that's been debunked. And Kayla's in library school now, and I'm so glad because <laughs> we need so many librarians like her. Um, but she called me on it. She was like, I think that's been debunked. And it's like, okay. Like, there was no, how dare she? Or I'm doubling down on this, yeah. which is, you that, know. And that, see, that's something I think that's really healthy to have. Be a skeptic and also be open to someone pointing out that you're incorrect right. about something. And then adapting your thinking. Yeah, it, um, change. <laughs> and oh my God, if you have people that love you enough to correct you, 
I know. <laughs> Please treasure them because I did. I'm, I'm glad really for it. Bad. You know what? I'm not the greatest at saying to someone. I might just humor someone and let them. I do too. And I'm bad about it. It takes a lot to really, you it have does. to really be close to someone. Well, and you have to understand too, it's going to take more effort on your part to debunk it um, than the person who is wrong. They can say all day that um, crickets cause cancer. And the fact that you don't have any studies that prove that they don't, by the way, they don't, to my knowledge. Like that's a <laughs> Let's thing get that I just one said. Out. Let's yeah, not start that one. That rumor. is just a thing I said <laughs> on the spot. Um, Crickets cause cancer, everybody. <laughs> heard it on a podcast with two college a people. <laughs> and an English teacher. <laughs> two college people said. But uh, because you don't have information on a bizarre claim that is so outlandish, no studies exist to debunk it, they will take that as truth. So yeah, um, it just... Well, and I'm starting to think like everybody has a conspiracy theory and it makes me kind of wonder what mine is like. No, no, I think I know what mine is. Mine's oh, probably, is I think that cardboard books for children are made knowing like the lift the flap kind specifically. Uh -huh. Kids don't have that motor control. If they're reading cardboard books, they want those books ripped apart. So you buy more. <laughs> That's, That's my not conspiracy. a bad conspiracy theory. But it's it is a big kind of cardboard book. You um, might want to get your temple hat out. Yeah, yeah. I do. <laughs> Otherwise, they read them straight from my brain. No, um, that's my that's my conspiracy theory. I'll have to think about what mine is. I'm sure I have several. So I want to shift just a little bit in the sort of last 10 to 15 minutes we have left. Mm -hmm. And because uh, I think you're so interesting and cool. Yes, cool. <laughs> you are in the process of fostering or adopting. Well, we're um, we're trying to adopt and we are um, going through DHR for that. Um there's quite a need in Walker County, especially um, with a lot of the drug issues and things. They have more children than I realize that are, they call it TPR, uh, termination of parental rights, that have no parental anything. And the, the foster parents that do exist here are overwhelmed. Um, DHR is overwhelmed. They're overwhelmed. So we're actually completing our last class for it next week. You go through 10 classes, 10 classes through DHR. And its own um, understanding trauma. Adoption or fostering is kind of born from trauma, like any separation. And the wisest thing I think I was told was uh, Jana Ruth told me um, trauma starts in the womb. So the so a lot of the babies may be born addicted to certain drugs. They may be born with every chance in the world and then things happen. But that separation is innately jarring and traumatic. So we're going through these classes learning about um, the ways in which a parent can sort of mitigate that if possible. The, you know, it's, it's not a um, happy prospect to adopt, but it was our first choice for our second child um, or even our first child. We were considering adopting when we found out that we were pregnant with my daughter, Athena. So it kind of threw that one we were yeah. also not married long enough. You have to be married more than a year, and we were still under a year. So we, uh, we're we going through this process. We're doing the home study and all this, and I was debating whether private adoption or through DHR was correct for us. I got really in my emotions because someone posted this um, silly thing on Facebook about DHR is not your free adoption service. And it was very elitist and classist about how you're taking advantage of split families. And the purpose of DHR is reunification. I agree with that. But reunification is not always possible. 
so trying to get those birth families and their children back together, sometimes they don't want it. Sometimes they want it, but they can't overcome whatever obstacle is in the way. And I had to think, you know, you're going to get a dozen crazy opinions on any parenting thing you do. And why should adoption be different? It's bizarrely like pregnancy because um, I feel like <laughs> I keep getting the horror stories. Like everyone loves when you're pregnant to tell you their horror story about I was in labor for 16 weeks and all their silliness. And I feel like now I keep hearing about, um, you know, so-and-so was adopted and they were a serial killer or they strangled the bomb um, and they're sleeping. And I'm like, that's of course. So there's yeah. that. There's always like they love, story of adoption or, or they put, they put their whole heart on adopting this child only for it to be yanked back at the last minute. And even with fostering, there's this thing that people say of, Oh, I just couldn't get attached. But the thing is, the kids get attached regardless and attachment is sort of a natural part of human development, especially at that age. And you've sort of got to be able to put your well-being behind theirs because they need that bonding. To, I mean, your brain literally grows when you're a baby on the bonding hormone oxytocin. That's why, you know, um, besides food. <laughs> and so um, it kind of bugs me now to hear people say, Oh, I just couldn't get attached. And I'm like, well, they do regardless, you know, right. It's a, uh, what makes, so you have one daughter, Athena. Uh-huh. Do you want to have even more children? I mean, what is it? That yeah, we were looking, we were planning to have a second one. Um, and our backup is <laughs> our backup plan of adoption fell through was to do it biologically again. But um, yeah, we, I think two would probably be the max. Um, my husband stays home with Athena and I work. So it might be that I just feel like it's put into two. Not that he would be averse, but I feel like I'm just putting on him if we right. went past two. We may reevaluate. We may say, oh, no, two. You know, there was a time we thought we were one and done. So I don't know if this is a question that I can ask or should ask. Will you be adopting a an infant or? Yeah, we're going okay. for a zero to four is our range. So um, we feel like. <laughs> We feel like at least Athena, we've seen everything up to age four mm -hmm. developmentally. And there's no way you can see it all, especially with children who have been in the system. But yeah, I wouldn't be prepared if I was questioning constantly, is this normal for an eight-year-old or is this something related to trauma? Right. Um, we're a little divided. I'm kind of hoping for a newborn infant, like a tiny infant. Dalton is hoping for maybe an older infant, toddler. So we're just going to see how it shakes out because we're both fine with it either way. We don't have any preference, boy or girl, though Athena does. She wants a sister. Does she really? She, yeah, she has strong opinions on that. Um, <laughs> everything. Well, what are you going to do if it's not, if it's not a sister? We'll, 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 we'll do some consoling. It just. What um, is Athena like? I've met her once. What is, what is your daughter like? She, um, she's the, very bright. She, seems to me. I, I feel like it. Uh, she is so funny because sometimes it's like having this little eldritch being around the house that makes these cryptic remarks. Like I introduced her to my coworker the other day and she has never met him. And she goes, I know. Like they had had some deal worked out <laughs> and, uh, but they couldn't tell, you know, like a mafia job. She's so funny. And she seems so like timeless with some of the stuff she says. But then other times there's that like normal kid stuff. Like she told us when we were adopting um, every week with the classes, she thought we were going to come home with a baby. And one week it was, don't get someone who looks like me. And I said, why? I think no, she said, you get mixed up. And I was like, that's, 
That's not going to happen, hon. It's not. That's sweet. Uh, one one of the things I love when I'm looking at your Facebook page, is I've noticed that uh, Athena, I keep want to say Elena, Athena knows a lot of this music from like the <laughs> 70s. Yeah, she. Like, I grew up on all the oldies music. And so it's what comes naturally to me to sing in the house. So um, she requests Billy Joel and Tina Turner. And oh, God, we got into Alanis Morissette because of the Tonys. And she was mad at me and she had me pull up this song from this Alanis musical where the mom and daughter are arguing and they're like screaming at each other. I was like, I know what you're doing. I know this trick. <laughs> she she even calls it that angry song. And she's like, pull up that angry song like Athena. So it's fun. It's just it um, and art, too. I have I call it the art wall. Of course, it's in the room that will be the baby. So I've got to find somewhere else to put them. But it's like a museum wall i think it's called where you just hang pictures willy-nilly and hope they're straight yeah that's how i do it and I uh, it's got it's got all my favorite classical art that like i'm not an art buff at all but i have some art appreciation is yeah. how i put it and i think i'll walk in there and she'll go that mama lisa and it's mona lisa or <laughs> what did she call no it was longfellow the poet she said that fellow but there was something Degas. Oh, she learned the word. I know. I accidentally, you can edit this out if you have to. I was describing Degas, like, and how he paints movement, and how he always took paintings with subjects like ballerinas or sometimes sex workers, which is what I should have said. And uh, oh, no. I, instead, I said hookers. <laughs> There's not really a time you should say the word hookers to a four year old. But I was rattling off about Degas and how he could pay them for their time to paint them. And that's why it was why he tends to paint a lot of sex workers. And uh, I hear my husband from the other room. He's going, Elena. And um, so Athena knew immediately she was not supposed to say hookers. Yeah. So she said hookers, hookers, hookers. And thankfully that faded from <laughs> DHR's going to listen to this. Be like, wait a minute. I'll take it <laughs> out if you want me to. You know, everybody. Oh, no, you don't have to. But uh it was teaching art history. That counts for something. Absolutely. But yeah, I love music and art. And this, it was last night. I went, I fell asleep at 630 last night and I woke up at midnight and I couldn't go back to sleep. Mm -hmm. So I started listening to Harry Styles. I was telling you this earlier yeah. and I was listening to his first album and uh, then I was looking through pictures of him. I was like, oh, so I'm, I wake up and start having these fantasies about how I can start dressing like Harry Styles. Mm -hmm. I started, so I've got that fantasy going in my head. Yeah. Because I think fashion is art. I really oh, it do. is. Absolutely. And Wearable I, art. Yes. And then I started watching, uh, uh, what's that? Ted Lasso. Mm -hmm. Sobbing my eyes out. Really? Until 3.30 in the morning. Um, these are the things I do when I wake up. I had a point. Oh, I was going to tell you that because at one point I was like, oh, I bet that Elena's writing right now and I'm sitting here having daydreams of being Harry Styles and crying while watching Ted Lasso. That's what I'm doing with my mornings. I, um, I was probably yelling at the dog. Um, not yelling, <laughs> but doing that yell whisper thing you have to do. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, uh, that's people typically know where I am at 4am. So I have friends that will message or call me when they're manic or things like that. And it doesn't bug me, you know, um, I feel like if, they need things going on but um yeah you wake up because you went to bed too early that kind of thing and it's oh she's up that's how do you do you avoid social media 
in that time? I, does it distract you at all? It does distract me. And sometimes if I can't write, I'll get on and post things. And I always justify it as like, well, it's still words and I'm still writing a Facebook post. But that's stupid, like for me, because I know that I'm just turning to my phone. Um, the best thing that ever happened to me is living, uh, besides my family and all this, um, <laughs> living somewhere rural where um, I have terrible internet. So I can be like, don't use your data on piddling. Oh, you have to use your data? Yeah, I have to use data for oh, any I bit I of internet. call this episode, don't use your data on Don't piddling. use your data. <laughs> don't use your data on piddling. Um, yeah, we have, we have, we use our little Verizon jetpack for all our data. We tried satellite. It was terrible. And uh, so I'm sitting there going through it going, I just can't, I can't waste time on Facebook and not write because. I'm trying to, I think there's a line between not being hard on yourself and not using that whole productivity as king model, you know. Right, yeah. But there's a line between, you know. Yeah, we're not worker bees. We're not. <laughs> and though, like, falling too much into, like, just completely spending all of my time crying at Ted Lasso, daydreaming mm -hmm. about Harry Styles and, you know, well, sleeping from 630 to midnight. I mean, like, there's got to be a middle ground somewhere. There's, It's always easier to consume um, than to produce, even reading. I mean, See, you put that so succinctly. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, um, even reading, I could sit and read instead of writing, and I don't have to do a thing except engage and think while I'm reading. Um, same as TV, though, just, you know. Um, the consumption can be... Uh, inspirational too. It but can be. It can yeah. Also be, you have to read to write. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's so hard though to disconnect when, especially when after COVID you realize that sometimes your friends live in your phone is an expression I've heard. And there are people that I would have lost touch with long ago if I didn't have the ability to send them a message and say, Hey, I'm thinking of you and, you know, yeah. send them a meme when you don't have anything else to say. And it just, I, I don't know where that balance is. I haven't found it. You're very good in the writing group of, of, of not being a taskmaster and, <laughs> you know, encouraging people not to be hard on themselves, mm -hmm. but also emphasizing how important it is to develop some sort of regular practice. Mm -hmm. Would you describe yourself as a very disciplined person? Uh, not generally. Yeah. I, um, I wish I was. Um, I'm not very orderly except with the books on the shelf. Um, but with writing at least, I know I feel better if I write. So I guess that's kind of a self-care thing. What's that word you told me that time? You said you have. Oh, that is, is part that of it. Hypergraphia. Real? No. Um, so I'm OCD and that seems to be an aspect um, of it for me is one of my compulsions. I just have to write or create something or make something like um, a lot of people have it and don't realize that's a thing. Stephen King probably has it because he has to write. But then the mark you decide probably had, it, <laughs> had to write. Um, and sometimes you write nonsense and it's not anything productive. But uh, yeah, I, it's a good compulsion to have. Though, it it is like if you're there are worse ones, you know, you could be addicted to gambling or sex yeah. or anything. And from about 15 onward, I just have had to do something creative. And writing is I mean, I can sew and crochet, but writing is sort of my my main focus creatively. So. My whole day feels off if I don't write, like the way some people. I love that about you. I wish that I felt that way. My well, whole day feels off. Your whole day feels off if you don't write. Yeah. That's fantastic. I mean that. I'm not just. Well, 
That's fantastic. I, I enjoy it. It works for me. And it's um, if I never make a dime off of it. Um, I mean, I spent some time as a copywriter, um, the only non-library job I had. And it was miserable because it just wasn't a library job. But if I never make a dime off of my fiction, I still enjoy it at the end of the day. So, yeah. And that's good. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're in a place in your life where you're really enjoying life and that things are going well? I do. I um. I sort of have these moments where I think this is never, this was never what I pictured as far as being back in Walker County because I left for a while and um, not living, living at my mom's, I don't want to say at my mom's house, but like I always thought of that as the family home I'd come back to if I did. And uh, I'm on my husband's property and, but I adore it. I bought a house during the pandemic, uh, which was, um well mobile home but i say house it's got four walls and see you know it's It's and uh and i told dalton i'm never moving again so if we ever move at least this one goes with us it goes with with us i'm never redesigning i just so you're happy out in the country mm -hmm, i love it we have we have a little pond we walk down to um technically on our in-laws property next door we move back to take care of family but it's sort of where i don't know i just feel like it's peaceful out there even yeah. when everything's yelling. <laughs> Listen, this morning, you know, when I was awake, Dolly, my dog, had to go out. It was like 2.30 or something. And I went out back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's peeing and sniffing. And there was, and we're right on the edge of like this wooded area. Yeah. There was some great commotion in the dark, in the trees. Yeah. Maybe it was just a branch falling. I don't know. But you have never seen a dog and a man. <laughs> run so fast back in the house. So I, I don't know how I would do out in the country. It's, um, I had to learn that everything in the woods screams, foxes scream, <laughs> rabbits scream. Um, everything, really? everything scream. Yeah. Foxes sound like someone's being murdered. Um, coyotes are like dogs, oh. but shriller. And, uh, I assume deer scream too. Cause they Why do. Not? One time. Okay. You I heard know we have to, scream? Have you heard this story? Before? No, I want to know. We've got to wrap up soon. I'll have to do a lot of editing on this, but I was, when I worked at Marion military Institute mm-hmm. for five or six years before I moved there, I would commute and highway five. I think it was, there are a lot of deer, just lots mm-hmm. and lots of deer. And in the mornings, if it was still dark, I would always be afraid. Or when I was heading back, if I come up here on the weekend to Birmingham and going back at yeah. night, I was so afraid a deer would, because so many people on you have been, had, hit had by run, deer, yeah. And I'm like, this is mind. how I'm going to die. I'm going to hit a deer and I'm going to die. So I would drive down that road, honking the horn, flashing my <laughs> lights. And one time this deer came out. What's all that commotion about? He comes well, out. <laughs> he was standing in front of my car. And I was like, oh my God, this is when I'm going to hit this deer. So I just turned just a little bit. I knew not to go crazy and like, you know, hit the brakes and swear, swerve too hard. That deer went down the side of my car and its face went down my window and it screamed. Yeah. It screamed. It went, <laughs> Yeah. I swear, deer scream. I, I, I believe it. it. I know they'll run alongside cars. And uh, how many times I've heard that? I think it's Carol King. Is it Carol King or Carly Simon? Oh, my God. Carol King. Um, so far away. Oh, and yeah. That's that, that line about, I sure hope the road don't come to own me. I'm like, that means I'm going to get hit by a deer. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah, that's ter- I still am somewhat frightened of a deer jumping out. Because they'll just be right there and you think, okay, it's going to stay there. And then... Yeah, you always think they're going to go jump into, they'll like run into the side of your car. I was coming to work one day, walking to my car and, uh, you know, we live out in the woods. I had taco salad and my little Tupperware thing. And uh, 
two deer were standing there. I was like, okay, they know their place. They're going to wander. I'm not Snow White. They're going to go. They start approaching me. And because my mother-in-law feeds them, she buys salt licks. But also um, animals in the country seem to be a lot bolder, which has led to me yelling at raccoons and all kinds of things. And so um, they just stand there like, you want to get to your car or not? And I came into work and I was so frazzled. I remember telling Miss Ruby, like, these deer, they were so bold and they're not supposed to be bold. (laughs) Well, I have really enjoyed talking to you. I say this to a lot of people, but I really do mean it with everyone. I don't say it to every person I interview, but I really think we could have our own podcast. (laughs) Or you could definitely have your own podcast. I'd get in trouble. Uh, no, I've managed. No, I don't. I have not gotten in trouble. It's three years. And people who know me in real life know that I <laughs> am not afraid to buck authority. I thought you, I thought you played it safe. And <laughs> I play it safe on the, on the podcast only because it's not really about me, you know? Yeah. Like, I don't talk about all the horrible you're things not, that go You're not on. Joe Roganing it, being like, right. what is your... <laughs> so anyway, I've enjoyed this time. I think that everybody would enjoy getting to know you a little better. I've, been, I've enjoyed talking to you, and I guess we'll wrap it up now. But remember this. This is sage advice from Elena Browning. <laughs> don't wait. Don't <laughs> wait. I'm going to get it right. Don't waste your data piddling around. Yes. That is why I say that, and everything screams in the country. Everything <laughs> screams in the country. That sounds threatening, but... Thank you, Elena. Yeah, anytime. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Where You Are, a podcast created, edited, and hosted by Jimmy Ellenberg. The intro music is Sunrise by Skirk used with permission. The views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of my employer. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day wherever you are.